0: Thank you for joining me. This is episode 8 of Flourishing Better Bible Instruction. I'm your host, David Grills, and I'm a high school Bible teacher. In the last episode, I walked you through my first unit of the Old Testament survey course that I teach. In the first unit, we try to answer the questions, what is the Bible and what is the story of the Bible? In this next unit, we head right into Genesis 1 and begin applying some of the skills we were introduced to in the last unit. As you might imagine, this unit can be controversial as we head into Genesis chapter 1 and look at the creation account. So right away I try to take some of that controversy away uh, with a couple of things. First we look at the idea of doctrine, and then we look at the creation accounts through the lens of several New Testament passages, dividing the doctrinal question about creation into the who and the how. One helpful tool that I use to talk about doctrine is a graphic adapted from the English Standard Version Study Bible. If you have an ESV Study Bible, you can find it on page 2507 of the 2008 Version of the Study Bible. I use this definition for our class. Doctrine is a set of agreed-upon beliefs in a community. The graphic helps us build out that definition by breaking down these beliefs, these agreed-upon beliefs, by their value or importance. For example, in the centermost circle of this set of concentric circles, you have essential beliefs. And I ask my students, what beliefs are essential to be able to call yourself a Christian? And generally, the students are pretty good at offering ideas about the person and work of Christ, uh, the existence of God, etc. Next comes our convictions. These are ideas or beliefs that are are very important, but less important than essentials. In other words, you would never say to someone who disagrees with you on one of these topics that they are not a Christian, but it might be important enough or a conviction to you that you might leave a church. These topics include things like requirements for leadership, uh, baptism, and who can have communion. After the second circle comes opinions, and then finally questions. And opinions and questions are not issues that you should be dividing over or arguing over. They might include ideas about end times or or music. As we discuss these circles, and I take ideas from students of what ideas belong where, I want them to begin to think about the how and the who of creation, and where each of those fit on these concentric circles. We don't come to a resolution necessarily at this time, but I really want them to understand that if we take the position that the how of creation is an essential doctrine, that that might cause unnecessary division and conflict, when maybe it's a question or an opinion. It might even be a conviction. The who of creation is a lot less controversial. So with the question in mind of where does the how belong, We head to the New Testament and take a look at John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. John chapter 1 in the prologue says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Colossians 1, 16b, and 17 say this, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And finally in Hebrews 1 verses 2 and 3 it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So together we summarize these passages as all things are made through Christ, all things are made for Christ, and he holds all things together. So I ask my students, do you think all Christians could agree with these statements? And do you think that belief about these statements belong in the center circle or one of the outer circles? So we arrive at a consensus that these beliefs about who Jesus is and what Jesus does belongs in the center or the essential circle. But what I'm trying to do is build some consensus about very important ideas that most, if not all, Christians believe. And this allows all of the students in the room who call themselves Christians to feel, hey, yeah, this is something I can grasp onto, even if what I believe about the how of creation doesn't match up with my seatmate or with someone down in the hall, my family, etc. And now we go back to the days of creation and how those days can be interpreted. And like all future topics, I try to connect back to what we've been learning about this being an ancient Near Eastern document with real cultural background that is meaningful to how we are meant to understand and approach whatever it is that we're reading in the Old Testament. So one of the supports that I use, one of the documents I give the kids, is from the Faith Life Study Bible. And it's a depiction of the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe. That's the title if you want to Google that. And it shows Sheol, the underworld. It shows uh, the earth and the firmament above the earth with waters above and waters below, etc. The pillars that hold up the firmament. The idea that the sun, moon, and stars were inside of that firmament, much smaller. Not this gigantic star that we go around once per year. And then we talk about how we view things, what we understand to be true about the universe. I ask them how they know these things are true, and I introduce the ideas of general revelation and special revelation. For the purpose of our conversation about creation, I talk about general revelation as sort of revealing who God is through nature, uh, much like Psalms and Romans talk about. And for many students who are heading into science and feel concerned that what they're going to learn will contrast with what the Bible says, I invite them to think about their pursuit of science as a pursuit of this general revelation, finding out how God has done things. Likewise, as we study the Bible, I caution them against looking to the special revelation of Scripture for answers to questions that general revelation might answer better or our scientific investigation of what God has made, what God has done. An example of this might be looking at the creation of Adam in the garden and how there was nothing for him to eat, uh, asking questions about, well, what did he eat until the plants grew? How long did it take to grow? Those are the kinds of questions that the scriptures don't care about. It's not trying to answer all of those questions because those things are revealed elsewhere or are unimportant to the story of who God is and what he's doing. In my classroom, of course, there's a diversity of belief. There are students who who believe that the Bible does address all of those issues, and then there are students who are already finding that church or the Bible is creating a false conflict for them. They don't know it's false, but they feel there's a conflict that requires them to choose between faith or science. And on both fronts, students have gaps in their understanding. I often have questions from students saying, you know, I can't believe that people evolved from monkeys, revealing that they don't understand what evolution is, while other students might make a claim that's just not in the creation accounts. So then we head back to the text, and we do a close reading of Genesis chapter 1. Right up until Genesis chapter 2, like I said before, there's an unfortunate chapter break before the actual end of the story, the first part of the story. After our reading, I ask them what their questions are. That is an expectation that we've been building in for a couple of weeks already. They know that they need to be generating questions and comments as we read or as I read to them. And this is where our discussion about general revelation and special revelation comes in handy. Some of their questions, they're trying to look in the special revelation for answers to questions that might better be revealed by our understanding of what God has made. In other words, as a student asks, well, how can there be light on the first day if there's nothing to generate light until the fourth day? And usually I respond, well, does the text try to explain that? Is that part of the meaning or purpose behind the text? Some of the great students of science in the class might talk about various kinds of light that aren't from the sun, or the moon only reflects light. They might talk about how some animals give off light, or even some stones give off light, that kind of thing. And my goal in our study and discussion is to give students of a variety of beliefs a framework for managing what to expect from scripture and what to expect from elsewhere. As we discuss the different days and think about the questions that are asked, we then explore six different Christian views of creation. We start with a framework interpretation where we look at how, from a literary perspective, the days are broken into two categories. The first three, God forms. And then in days four, five, and six, he fills those days that he formed. In other words, day one, God creates light. Day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, the sky and the seas are created. Day five, the birds of the air and the fish. And on day three, God creates dry land. And then we have land animals, plants, and people. And then God rests. This is a diagram, which obviously I can't show you on a podcast. We then look at other understandings of the creation account, dividing them into two categories, young earth and old earth, or ideas that try to hold to a six to 10,000-year-old earth versus ideas that are perfectly comfortable with a 4.25 billion-year-old earth. It's important for me to emphasize to my students that these are Christian views. In other words, If we go back to our concentric circles of doctrine, our understanding of how God made the heavens and the earth may belong outside of the essential ring. For some, it may be a conviction, but most likely we just have an opinion or we have questions about the how, where the who of creation can be agreed upon and very likely belongs in that essential circle, being core to Christian belief. I'm not going to outline each of the views that we look at. Sometimes a student will introduce a view that they've heard of. We do look at the traditional view, the face value view of the account. We also look at theistic evolution, as well as the views that try to have it both ways, like gap theory or apparent age theory. At the end of this unit, students have a reflection assessment. And like the recorded conversation, the question is always the same. It's just the answers that are different because of what we're learning. And the questions are, what is one thing that you have been learning that stands out to you? And why is it meaningful to you? I give a guide for this kind of reflection as well as some exemplars and explain that what I'm looking for in all of their work is thoroughness, being detailed, asking themselves, why did I say that? And then explaining as well as thoughtfulness. What are you really thinking about? Why is this meaningful? And after this particular unit, I find students really fall into a couple of categories. There are students who, after looking at the creation account, looking at the various theories and responses to this account, generally stick to what they've learned growing up, what they've learned at church or at home. And then there are students who are surprised to know that there are options and find comfort in one or just even the concept of options. For example, I might have a student who didn't know that theistic evolution was a Christian idea, and then finds that maybe their crisis moment of departing the faith isn't actually a crisis moment that requires a decision now, but more pursuit of what does scripture say, who is God, and so on. As we're discussing in the early days, I do recommend that they don't try to put a flag down on any particular view That change is part of sanctification. It's part of maturing. So growing up and and being flexible enough to say, you know, I used to think this when I was a child, and now I'm learning more, is totally healthy. After studying this text together over the last number of years this particular way, I've not had any student who felt that they were forced to think one way or another. They will often ask me, well, what do you believe, Mr. Grills? This is my response usually. I believe God could make it all in one day or even less, but I'm not threatened by the idea that someone else might believe it may have taken 4.2 billion years or that God authored evolution. I also let them know that there are challenges for me in different understandings. For example, is it necessary to believe in a historical atom? If I were to subscribe to theistic evolution, does that necessitate a special moment where Adam and Eve were created in order to believe what I see from Paul in the New Testament, for example. Sharing these questions that I have with my students helps them realize that, yeah, this is a journey of growth and understanding. And hopefully with other practices that I have in class, they begin to embrace the idea that they need to do the work of understanding, of listening throughout their entire lives. We then move on to the account of The Creation and Fall of Adam and Eve, which is a fun study for me. Again, we do a close reading, and this time there is a visual note that I have them right with me. In this particular close reading, I'm hoping they notice a particular theme related to nakedness. You can imagine that with 10th graders this might be humorous, but I just take it as a matter-of-fact thing. I don't react to the idea of nakedness, and my students follow my lead. In the first pass, the C portion of our close reading, they are meant to take notes on different things that they notice from the text. Is there anything repeated? What do you see out of joint? Is there a strange phrasing here? They write those things down, and then we take them up on the board. There are different ways to have students work. You could have them work in groups individually. I like Captain, Co-Captain, where those students that don't like to speak out loud can speak to their group mates, and then one person speaks on behalf of the group. All the while, the more quiet kids can feed that person information from their own engagement with the task. After this, we're meant to make connections, talk about the meaning of these things that we've observed, and then finally, the last part, they ask questions. And these questions aren't necessarily, you know, open questions or closed questions of, you know, how long did it take to make Adam and Eve or, Where is the garden, for example? But their questions could be, well, how does this change how I view other people? How am I affected by the actions of Adam and Eve, or even the actions of God toward the end of the story in chapter 3? This kind of question asking in the wonder portion, sort of an application of what we're reading, is where I want students to arrive without very much prompting. At this stage, there is a lot more prompting. For me, one of the enjoyable parts of this study is just how students are very familiar with this text but didn't see many things until they've done this close reading process. For example, students are amazed that the only description given for Adam and Eve was that they were naked. The only description of their rebellion against God is that they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. and when God says to Adam, well, where are you? Why are you hiding? Adam's response is, we heard you. We were afraid because we are naked. And then God says, who told you you were naked? So we have this four times mentioning nakedness, which is very strange. And if you read it quickly, you may not notice it, which is why I encourage kids to take up this practice of close reading. And I hear from students, you know, at the end of a course, at the end of a school year, saying how when they go to church, they are more engaged and are listening differently than they had before, and that having a first-hand knowledge of Scripture was more important to them. After talking about this for a bit and hearing from students say, I'd never noticed that, why didn't I see that before? We then talk about, well, how does God resolve this problem? What is God's response? After discussing the consequences, we then see how God creates clothing for them. And I ask them, well, where do skins come from? For the more mature students, suddenly the penny drops and they realize that God has shed blood in the garden to cover over the sin of Adam and Eve. And how he addresses their immediate need of a covering. They need something to wear. We then make a note together and add images to important texts and important ideas. I have a template that I've used over and over again, so there's a little bit of suggestion from me as we get started. But students also have their own ideas, and it's important for them to be making notes rather than taking notes at least some of the time. After this, we look at Cain and Abel, and lots of big questions come up about that. Where did all these people come from? Did they marry their sisters? Etc. etc. We look at genealogies, and there's a great article in our study Bible that talks about how genealogies and ages were understood in the ancient Near East that the writers of scripture are not trying to tell you everything. They don't branch off between siblings. They go down one particular line, and they do something called telescoping. In other words, it's handy to have 20 generations rather than 28 or 36. I do spend time on genealogies and looking at what's written in there, talking about anachronisms, again, talking about purpose, even reminding them of things like deep reality. You know what is important in this text. The deep reality suggests that we want to know what is God doing, how is God orchestrating His plan of redemption through this genealogy or through the choice of this person or that person, rather than being distracted by the historicity or the scientific angle of these generations. For example, for example, did Lamech's son Tubal Cain actually work in? both bronze and iron when the traditional author Moses died before the Iron Age. These kinds of anachronisms or things that are out of time can be explained by again going back to what is the purpose of the text, what are we meant to learn from this about who God is and what he's doing, but then also understanding that the Bible wasn't written in English so we are perfectly happy to read an edit or an update. As usual, I read to the class each day, and as we look at the flood and then later the Tower of Babel, they are expected to see things in those texts that they haven't seen before and draw them to my attention through question-asking and making statements. A couple of things that surprise them as we take a look at those texts are that people weren't supposed to be eating meat until chapter 9 when God says, "Now you can eat meat. We discuss the shape and the size of the ark. We talk about possible solutions to the difficulties with that story, but also emphasizing that what we're looking for in details that aren't there maybe isn't what matter to the story. And having previously learned about the importance of literary setting like the city, they see quite clearly why the city was a problem. The things that the people in Babel wanted for themselves is a great launchpad into the next section, the next unit when God gives freely to one particular person all of those things that the people of Babel wanted. So in this second unit, my desire is to loop back to the things that we learned in the previous unit, to reinforce the close reading skills, and introduce a new assessment which is the reflection. I don't have time in this second, shorter unit to do one-on-one conversations or a project. In the next episode, I will talk about the third unit, which will get us into Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as well as the minor characters that are very important in revealing both who God is and who we are. Thank you for joining me.